You are listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast, brought to you by Bobby Hayeri and Darren Venter, founders of the investors agency and Debar. With over 20 years experience in real estate between them and having bought hundreds, if not thousands of properties around the country, you are in the right place to learn all things property. This podcast is designed to educate and empower everyday Aussies to take control of their future through property. Hey guys, Bobby here and welcome to episode eight of the Lazy Equity Podcast. On today's show, I'm super excited to have a very special guest. He is a property investor. He's a property investment advisor, founder and head of strategy at a very new and innovative product for all investors called Game Plans. Jordan, nice to, uh, nice to have you on board, mate. No, thanks, Bobby. I think uh, you and me go a, a little a little bit back with some podcasts in history, but I'm, I'm, I'm wrapped to be here today and catch up and have a bit of a chat. Thank you, mate. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I remember I came on your podcast. How long ago was that now? Oh, mate, I reckon it was maybe two and a half, three years ago. It was probably when you like first started the, the biz. I think. I don't, how long's the business been running for? About three and a half years. So it would have been quite early on in the uh, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I reckon it was pretty early days. So, um, yeah, there you go. Well, nice, mate. We are we we reconnect uh, reconnect a few years later, and and look, the reason I wanted to to get you on is is share your story personally, but also share or or discuss what game plans is and the value that it can bring. I know me, you, and and Darren, my business partner, sort of went through it all a few weeks ago, and we just saw a ton of value that it can add to investors. And and look, I think ninety percent of investors get stuck at one or two properties, and it's because they don't have a game plan. So. Like we'll touch on that a little bit later on in the episode as well. But why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself on a personal level, who you are, and then we'll just take the conversation from there. Yeah, yeah, cool. So I'm Jordan. Hi, guys. <laughs> nah, so I started investing. I think I've, I bought my first property when I was 23, and that was just before we were getting married. I got very, I got married very young. But I've always been around the property space. So my old man's a real estate agent. Uh, he always had like the Steve McKnight books and Robert Kiyosaki and all that sort of around the house. So I did go through stages when I was in like later high school when I read them and kind of sparked that interest nice and early. And then I kind of lost, I think I was going to buy like an 80K property when I was 18 or something. And I'm glad I never did. I've always had that sort of drive from a young age. I think it's probably just income and career because I went to uni after after school that didn't allow me to get in earlier. But yeah, I definitely had a spark from a young age and then bought my first one, which was a principal place of residence. Like it was somewhere for me and my, my wife to live in. And then, yeah, as soon as I bought that first one and you realize how to pull out equity and, and allow to go again and go again and compound and everything else like that's when the, the journey really sparked from me there. So you bought your first one at 23 with your wife, which was a owner-occupied. Do you mind me asking your age now? Is that appropriate for Yeah, a, I just turned 30. 30, right? So you started very young. You still are very, very young. <laughs> and then uh, how long were you? What was the sort of, what was the, where was the property when you bought it at 23? And then where did you sort of go from there? How did that one perform for you? And were there any learning curves? Maybe not so much with that one because it was owner occupied, but I'm sure you've had some along the way. Yeah. I mean, even that one, there's a lot of learning curves that come out of it. So I bought that in a place called Oak Park in. Victoria. It's kind of like 15 minutes, 20 minutes out from the, the city near sort of Essendon and Mooney Ponds area. I've got priced out of Essendon and Mooney Ponds. So we kind of had to go sort of one or two suburbs across, which is a really good point uh, that I'll bring up a little bit later. We bought that for 415. It was a two bedroom, brand new townhouse. It wasn't like we didn't buy it off the plan or anything else like that. Like it had been constructed. They were just selling the rest of them. 
And funnily enough, it's actually performed pretty well. I think we just got revalued at 675 or something like that. So hasn't like doubled in seven years. So like some properties have, but it hasn't been a bad performer anyway. And I guess some of the, the learning curves out of that is obviously a um, newish type of dwelling. Uh, it was in a block of five. So there's five other similar dwellings there. And then one, I think it was kind of one of the first blocks in the street that got redeveloped and then there was like a bunch more that got redeveloped in the area after ours and so everyone was buying up these old houses redeveloping five of them or whatever which is great money for them but then it also brought on a lot of supply for the same type of asset in a local area which isn't always a, a, a great thing but nonetheless has performed decently all right and I'm, I'm pretty happy with it so far and you touched on something really important for those those of you listening so you said it was in a block of five that is extremely important. We generally like to stick to... So this was your owner-occupied, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So we generally, as an investment property, like to stick to um, standalone sort of established homes. However, on, on those occasions when it is a townhouse or, or, or if, if it is an apartment or whatnot that we are looking to, or, you know, we are looking to buy or someone is looking to buy, the advice we always give is, is something in an area which has tight zoning restrictions. That way, even if 10 other houses on the street do get bought, it's only 50 more, you know, dwellings that are going to come on, not one block being bought with 300 dwellings going up. So that's super important for those of you listening in as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And um, my, my portfolio does have a few sort of like unit type townhouse things. So it's not like it, it's got a, every sort of freestanding house, but it's definitely something that I recommend now as well as having a good land component to, towards the house rather than, you know, buying one 100th of an apartment, which means you only own one 100th of the land underneath it. Yeah. And then, and then if you do get a hundred units that go up, you're, you're competing, let's just say it's 30% investors that buy it. You've got 30 more units that, that your apartment's competing with to find tenants and, and vacancy rates go up and those sorts of things. So, so yeah, we're definitely aligned, aligned there. So where, sort of how long after that purchase did you guys buy your next one and where to from there? Yeah. So it was in 2019, sorry. I'm not sure. I think it was like 25 or 26 or something like that. I can't do my maths off the top of my head. <laughs> but it was a little while after we purchased that first one. And the pure reason was it wasn't an investment. It was not an occupier. And so I didn't have that fire. And I remember there was one Christmas. It was probably the Christmas of 2018. I reread Steve McKnight's book and it sort of reignited everything for me. So 2019, I knew the market conditions. Everyone it was at sort of like that whole year. I've been listening to a thousand and one podcasts and YouTube videos about you know, everything investing wise. And it's that old saying, it'd be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. I hate actually using that because it gets so used in our industry. But anyway, yeah. that was what I was <laughs> at that point in time. And so the market was down. It was pre-election. I think we bought the, the weekend before the election where everyone was worried about the changes of legislation towards negative gearing and capital gains tax. I think that was the the, the concern at the time. Yeah, But again, it was in a block of four. So it is a unit it's on the ground floor though and has... Um, a land to value ratio of 70%. So that's kind of one of the criteria that I wanted to follow. Bought that for 480 and again, got revalued for 720 a couple of months back now. So again, it's actually performed pretty well since then. I'm, I've been very happy with it, but it's not that sort of freestanding existing dwelling. We did buy it for investment purposes because, and this is probably one of the mistakes that I'll sort of mention is it was, it was so that from where we were living prior, We'd like walk to these set of shops that was like really like a really up and coming set of shops. There's all new restaurants and cafes opening there. And on the way there, there was this really nice sort of art deco 
type building that my wife and I fell in love with. And, and we literally, we got pre-approved. We walked past it. It was on sale. I went in, did all my due diligence, got a building and pest inspection done. And the, the vendors, it was like a deceased estate. So the vendors were like really keen to sell. So we just picked it up, which is good because, I mean, there's, there's two things, right? It didn't provide me the diversification piece that I love and recommend to all investors. So you want to have a diverse portfolio across states, across areas within states, all those sorts of things. So you can apply different markets, but we really applied like the specialization piece because I knew the area really well. I knew it was really under market value and I knew I could pick it up for a good price, which kind of made me feel a little bit more comfortable about that purchase. But it did also mean that I had two assets relatively close to each other, which is generally not something that I recommend. Well, it sounds as though it had that owner-occupied appeal, Art Deco, close to the cafes, restaurants, and 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 it was it was again in an area which has tight zoning laws where there's not another hundred hundred units on top of it. So it sounds like it ticks those boxes that you need as an as an investment property. And just doing some surface level level math, that's about forty percent growth since you bought it. Potentially, was that in two? You said two thousand eighteen, just after the just during the royal commission, right? No, 2019 when it was like pre-election. Okay, 2019. So three years, 40% growth. Like you're not complaining there, right? Very, very strong results. Not bad. And then where to from there? So these are your first two properties, both in Melbourne. First is the owner-occupied, so you're not too worried about land tax. You're not there yet, but you'd be close to it after your next one. Yeah. So when did we buy the next one? I think it was less than 12 months that we bought the next one. So 2020, bought in Sydney. Again, it was in a block of four. So I don't I don't have any freestanding dwellings in my portfolio yet, which is so controversial for me. But uh, bought in Sydney, I think we bought it for, it was a two-bedroom unit, bought it for 473 just before. Oh, I, think it was, I think it was actually during the COVID pandemic, which again was that sort of reverse play or reverse, reverse play on the market and, and buying in at that point in time. It's in Botany, so you know, probably not like the best area in like, it's still, a, it's in a decent location. Like you, you, it's walkable to the beaches and all that sort of stuff. Where did you say, sorry? Botany in Sydney. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, not like, not like the really nice sort of beachy areas. Like my, my grandma um, lives in Maroubra. So um, I know that area quite well and compared to Maroubra, it's not the same, but definitely sort of like that up and coming sort of, sort of lifestyle closer to the city or CBD, all that sort of stuff. Bought that for 473. I got revalued again at 560, I think, just recently as well. So, yeah, again, you know, during the COVID pandemic, obviously, a lot of places went crazy and, and typically it was the, the higher end of the market. I, I, wish I, I wish I bought in Queensland at that point in time, but made the decision for Sydney, which was just a call. Um, but, yeah, it hasn't performed terribly or anything else like that. So pretty happy so far. And did you buy that one yourself or did you use a buyer's agent for that one? I used a buyer's agent. So that's when sort of the podcast came to, well, I was pretty active on the podcast side of things and had a friend who was living in Maroubra, so local local area, knew the area really well. He had it, it come up off market and just said, hey, I know you're looking and you got a pre-approval. Would you be interested in this? And kind of just snapped it up when I could again. So yeah, buyer's agent. Cool. I think with Botany, right, you're not going to go wrong. You're like extremely close to the airport. You're extremely close to the city. You sort of touched on it. It's a gentrifying area. There are lots of cool sort of restaurants, bars and cafes coming into the area and it is changing quite drastically. That whole area, Botany, Rosebury, uh, Alexandria, it's all it's all becoming, you know, um, historically it was quite industrialized, but that's changing quite a lot. And 
And what we'll start seeing is I saw something pretty interesting yesterday. I think it was on SBS where there is just under a million visa applications that the Australian government's trying to go through. Not all of them are coming in. Obviously, some are going out, some are renewals, but there is a ton of applications for people trying to migrate into Australia. Now, there are lots of people from Sydney and, Sydney and Melbourne migrating to Queensland, but all these majority of these people that are going to be coming from overseas over the next few years are going to be coming to Sydney and Melbourne. And most of these people will be renting for the first few years. And most of these people will be renting close to the cities, close to where it's more dense and close to where they know there is industries and 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 livelihoods to be made. So I think um sort of buying at that at that time where most people are, are are fearful getting a property at a very competitive price. And as this as the migration ramps up, you're you're definitely not going to go wrong. I can't comment on the Melbourne properties because I don't I don't know I don't know Melbourne as as much to be completely honest with you. But I'm just talking about botany in general. You you're definitely gonna you you're gonna see that perform very 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 well over the next few years. Yeah, oddly enough, I have this thing about airports. I just think, you know, even though we went through a COVID pandemic and no one could travel, I think what it has ramped up is that sort of working from home mentality. And so being closer to a CBD may not be, you know, the, the most prominent thing that it was historically moving forward. But I definitely think not being like right next door to an airport for noise and all that sort of stuff, but being able to be accessible to travel or, you know, if you're working from home two days or three days and then you have to fly to Sydney for two days being in the office or whatever it might be, I think that sort of working environment is going to become a lot more common than it historically was. So, yeah, I, de- I definitely agree. I think it, I think it's a good spot overall and I'm, I'm happy with where it is. Yeah, nice, mate. And um, on that topic, I had a really interesting conversation with a client a few months ago now. He works for Google and he was saying that in, uh, at Google, they've actually said that if people want to continue working from home, they can, but they're going to have a pay decrease for doing so. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens moving forward. I personally think that there's going to be a big shift back into the CBDs. It's already sort of happened half-half. I think it's going to start to happen. I mean, I think the Sydney Sydney uh, Sydney CBD Council is losing $2 billion a week. I think it was, don't quote me, something ridiculous like that. I'll, I'll actually get the exact figure and I'll put it in the notes just so I'm not making things up. But um, it's just, it's, it is something ridiculous like that. So obviously when the local CBD is losing that much money, they're going to incentivize businesses to incentivize their staff to come back into the, your central business district to stimulate that economy as well. So I, I do believe that that's going to change. There will be a percentage of people that will work remotely or maybe half-half, but I, I just think the councils are losing too much money to, to, to have it have the cities as a ghost town like it has has been, and, and they're going to put things in place to essentially indirectly force people to come back to the CBDs over time. Yeah, it's definitely a good point. I definitely think there's a a space for going back into the CBD. I, uh, I think there's, there's, it's not the same as working from home. I, you know, love catching up with people face-to-face now just because I've been on Zoom for the last three years. And there's definitely something different about it. So there'll definitely be an atmosphere around that. Yeah, whether it, go, uh, yeah, whether it goes full-time, like a lot of the sort of people that I used to work with in the office environment are now doing sort of that half-half, as you were mentioning, like two or three days at home and then the rest of the time in the city or whatever it might be. So it is going to be interesting to see how it, how it rolls back. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then, so that's three. You said you're in the process of buying number four. That's all right. So that's pretty much three in three in three years, almost, right? Yeah. Oh no. So first What's... one. Nah. So I'm thirty. Yeah. So it's been about six years overall since since I purchased my first one. So three and six years. But your next 
with your next purchase, oh, yes. it'll Correct. be three in three years. Correct, you're spot on. That's uh, that's pretty good, mate. Well done. So where's this next one? Looking, where are you looking at with this next one? Well, we've now got a daughter who's nearly two years old and um, definitely gone through a different stage of life. So congratulations. Thanks, mate. This one will definitely be for the forever home. And I guess it's kind of why I've sort of held out and not sort of, I mean, I've, I have sort of maximized my borrowing capacity within each purchase, but haven't put myself in a situation where I knew I, I couldn't keep purchasing again. So luckily enough, I've started the business and have other sources of income. My wife's income's increased pretty significantly as well. And been able to pull out a fair chunk of equity uh, from the, the growth of, of the dwellings. And so we've now just got, now just got pre-approved 2.2 and looking for sort of that principal place of residence forever home side of things. So most likely going to be, so we're currently in Mooney Ponds, which means we're going to have three properties in this sort of same <laughs> city, which again, I absolutely hate. But anyway, so yeah, either like sort of Mooney Ponds or Maribyrnong, which is like a really nice river over in Melbourne, kind of like 10 to 15 minutes away from the airport, but then like 10 to 15 minutes away from the city. So it's kind of really central from that side of things. My wife has lived in these areas since she was young and her family's all around here as well. So families is definitely a, a big point, but yeah, really want to get that that big rock in the jar before we continue that investing journey. And had you had, had you guys always planned to buy a forever home, for forever sort of family home when you guys raise a family? Was that always a, a box that you guys were going to tick? I think in the back of the head, yes. But for a while there, I sort of wanted to go down that red vesting strategy. Like we're big travelers too. We like we've been to Europe for eight weeks in America for four weeks and we love just like going going around and seeing different things. So I was never opposed to locking down a family home. Uh, I, no, sorry, never opposed to the rent vesting. Investing. Yeah. yeah, because I wanted to sort of have that flexibility if, you know, we're in between houses or whatever, we could go away for a while. But I think now that, you know, you start to think about schools and daycares and being close to family and, you know, not having to have the hassle of moving every 12 months or whatever it might be, you know, those, those thoughts do start to creep in and we've decided to take the plunge before we maximize out the buying capacity completely. Yeah. Nice. And, uh, and how are you finding fatherhood? <laughs> it's good, mate. It's really, really fun. She changes every day. There's always something new. She's, she's just the cutest little thing. So nice, nice. I got a, um, mine, mine, same age as yours. I got a little girl who's two as well. It's so good. And the reason I asked that question just before, if you guys are always planning to buy your forever home is because I'm sort of, in in our personal situation, we were always happy to rent vest and it's something that we always wanted to do. And then uh, something just switched inside of us when our little one started growing up and we're expecting another soon. And and all of a sudden, and we had a bit of trouble trying to find a, a, a rental when we moved into our most recent place because we've got a dog as well. So there was a whole, like there was a list of things that sort of, it, it made us a little bit concerned moving forward, but then also the emotional aspect of, of having that forever home to, to raise a family in and have memories in and, and have that security. It was a bit of a, a switch, uh, a light bulb switch for us because we were always planning on rent vesting, but uh, I'm at a very similar stage with you now where we're not buying an investment property next, we're buying an owner-occupied. Another reason for that is where, where we're living, Sydney's Northern Beaches, prices have dropped probably 20%, but then rents have gone up like 30%. So <laughs> it... Two years ago, it made sense to rent vest. Now, all of a sudden, with literally prices dropping 20% and rents going up, it's sort of like, well, yeah, almost it, it, numbers-wise, it's not much different. So, so you might as well sort of bite the bullet and, and go down that path. Yeah, I think you touched on something really important there for maybe the 
the, the people who haven't had kids yet, but are definitely deciding to have them in the future. Like it, it wasn't even, it wasn't just the portfolio or the thought process around the portfolio that switched for me. It's literally like I, when she was born, I looked at her and I thought I was that 30 years ago, like life goes so quick. And so I stepped out of the corporate ladder, started a business, do what I love every single day, just followed all my passions. And I, I think your your whole mentality shifts when, when you, you know, you're there and you have to care for someone else and, you go through that second stage of life. So, and, and yeah, it's probably a good transition into sort of the, the business side of things. I think, you know, being able to think think about what you actually want out of your life and where you want to be. And even though, you know, you've got certain biases of where you are now and the decisions that you, you make now, never never think that things can can change in the future. Another good example of that is the the Queensland land tax that just came into play. I mean, you know, for so long people wanted to invest into Queensland and I've had so many conversations over the last two weeks about people being concerned about that new implementation that comes through and things can change. Things can change that I had and concerns come up and worries come up and everything else like that. So I think it's really important just to like understand and be comfortable with where you are, but never be sort of stuck in that one central focus and, and be able to, to shift depending on how the market shifts. 100%. I think p- being able to pivot or shifting when, when if your situation changes or the situation changes, I think that's super, super important. So let's touch on, let's touch on game plans. That was, um, to the one thing I, I, I want to talk about and the one thing I think would gain, the listeners would gain so much value out of. Why don't you tell us a bit about where the idea came from, what it is, and, and we'll start that conversation. Yeah. So uh, on the corporate ladder, I was a data scientist and I did like heaps of business analytics for a construction company. And so I've got this background of just really wanting to understand numbers and see where things are going wrong, see, uh, you know, understand where we can improve and all those sorts of things. And I guess having that background, I built this gigantic spreadsheet of my own portfolio and, you know, I wanted to do those retirement goals. I wanted to understand how many properties I needed. I wanted to know when I'd have enough savings and equity to be able to go again into the next purchase. And so I can help make these informed decisions. And through that process, plus through the process of starting the podcast when I was younger, I was fortunate enough to meet people like yourself, Bobby, who are in the industry and, and are passionate about property as much as I am. And when I started to not only show them, you know, what the spreadsheet was for myself. They're like, oh, I really want this for us. And so that's when the idea sort of sparked around, well, what if we turn this into an online platform and allowed people to sort of do their own strategies and their own, analyze their own portfolio and see what would happen if interest rates went up 2% or came down 2% or, you know, inflation went up to 6% or, you know, all these things that are happening in the economy today, you can sort of analyze and prepare for. So that's where the whole philosophy was born out of and being a developer, I spent probably the next 18 months developing the platform that allows people to do that. So essentially people can come in, they can enter their details of their portfolio, they can do the money management side of things and then go through a series of questions around their portfolio. And then we've got an algorithm in the back end that then starts to understand where their existing portfolio is, then reverse engineer from their goals. So say they want 150K passive income in 23 years time or whatever it might be, we get we see what the portfolio needs to be at that point in time, take away their existing portfolio, and then we the algorithm builds out a port, uh, additional properties between now and then to be able to get to their end goal. So not only do they get to see where the snapshot of their current portfolio is and get a much better understanding of where any opportunity costs may lie, is there any underperformance, is there way too many expenses in you know, a strata payment or something like that and, and break that down. 
then additionally decide, okay, well, based on how much borrowable equity and savings I've got in this year or the end of this year, I might be able to buy a five, six hundred thousand dollar property, add that to the portfolio. Then in two or three years' time, you know, I might be able to go again for another seven hundred. Then I just need one more, but in the next three years, uh, and I could essentially hit my retirement goals by that target of twenty-three years. And think about what it might look like if we started to go down to one or two or three days worth of work, not like hard retirement, but start to transition into that from there. So. It's just more about having a plan around building out a portfolio, as I mentioned. And as you guys have heard through my journey, I kind of just bought when I thought the good marketing timing was, and I wanted to be super aggressive. I wanted to just keep buying, keep buying, keep buying. As Bobby mentioned, was three properties in three years, which is great. But I also, that was through the mentality of, I've just got to buy, I've just got to buy, I've just got to buy. And I didn't really have a plan around it. And as you can tell, and as I mentioned, I don't have any freestanding existing dwellings in my property, in my portfolio, which is something that I always sort of reinforce. Even though I'm not disappointed with the assets that I've got, if I've held on a little bit longer and said, okay, well, I don't need to buy this property at $480,000 today. If I wait another six or 12 months, I'll be able to buy a property for 650, 700, and I can get into a much better asset then. And that's going to perform for me much better over the next 30 years rather than just today. So it's more about taking that bigger picture, understanding where your portfolio is today, and then how do you make the best informed decision for the next purchase moving forward? Yeah, nice, man. I think that's super, super important. Like we went through this together a few weeks ago and the amount of information that is in there is something that I can guarantee 90% of investors that are doing it on their own wouldn't think about. If it's then investors that are using a buyer's agent, some of those buyer's agents might mention these things, but there's no tool to map it all out and customize it to that specific person. And and like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, like 90% of investors, they're getting stuck at one or two properties. And, And that is because we see it all the time. An investor comes in, I've got... $700,000 I want to spend, where's the best place to go and buy a $700,000 house? Well, that $700,000 house is not really going to help you. I mean, it potentially might, but for for the average person, if that's your free approval and you go and put it all on that one property, that $700,000 house, it's sure it's going to help you at retirement, but it's probably not going to actually help you retire or step away from work. What you need essentially what you essentially need from your investment properties, you need them to perform in a specific way. So then you can leverage into the next property from there. It's essentially like investment properties should just be one vehicle to get into the next vehicle to get into the next vehicle. And if you don't know your, if you don't know your numbers, if you don't know your your gross numbers compared to your net numbers and 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 council rates, insurance costs, property management, all these all these sort of fees on top, then you're you're sort of just having a a stab in the dark. <laughs> Another thing you mentioned, inflation, right? Like I don't think during our time, inflation's probably always just sat at around two percent, you know, somewhere between one to three percent. At least like the last ten years, that's what it's been sitting at. No one would have ever imagined inflation to be sitting at 6%. New Zealand just hit 79 I think it was. We're going to get there as well in the next few months. We'll be getting up to that 8% mark. This eats away at everyone's cash flow. Like it's, and, 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 and yeah, like I said, there is, no, there is no tool that I really know of that people can map out all this stuff in a lot of detail and help them to get some clarity on that. So I think it is um, a game changer there with what you, with what you have done. This is something that, that we 
that we want to implement at the investors agency. I know you sort of you work with buyers agents to put this into place, and it's super important for a buyers agent to be able to do this as well. This is something that we are going to implement at the investors agency, but it's something that, as you know, we've changed a few systems, changed a few structures, and there is a lot happening here. So for us to implement this, it's more systems and structures that we just don't have capacity to do at the moment. But sort of early next year, it's something that we can see investors gain a ton of value out of. How many buyers agents are, are, are doing, using this at the moment? And is it just Australia-wide? So we are Australia-wide, plus we've got one over in New Zealand. So you can say that we're uh, international. But There you I go. <laughs> I haven't really, um, haven't really pushed the international thing. So partner-wise, we just signed up our 46th partner. The majority of them would be buyers agents. I'd say 80% would be buyers agents. But we also work with property planners, mortgage brokers, financial planners, accountants, all those sorts of things as well. So predominantly the system is built for buyers agents to help their clients walk through the process. But as we all know, it's about building out a team. And so a part of that team process, you know, accountants like to see this information, financial planners like to line up their shares and everything else that they're advising on compared to the portfolio side of things. Mortgage brokers, obviously it's it's um, helpful for them when they're doing refinances and stuff like that. So we do have a number of different partners, but I'd say majority of them would be buyers agents. Nice. And is that what it was predominantly created for? Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, definitely. I think, well, I think uh, the original plan was like, this was going to be my sort of business. Like I was just going to do like property planning and sell this product. But, you know, that's sort of when when I started to show some of my friends in the industry, they were like, no, 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 you can't do that. You you know, we want to do this as well. And so that, that B2B side of things really came into play. And just because the early rollouts with some, with some you know, really heavy hitter buyers agents, they adopted it really well and had a big input on how it all, all built and played out. It definitely has that buyers agents focus to it for sure. Nice. And it, it takes a bit of, it takes a lot of time and also, um, I guess, responsibility to a sense away from buyers agents because we get asked all the time from, I'll get from, from clients all the time, we get asked to map out map out what they need to do for their goals and strategies and, and all this, all, all this, they, they want to know how to essentially get to their end goal. And, and we need to be really careful because A, we don't have that information and B, if we're giving that advice, it sort of starts to get, it starts getting over towards that financial advising sort of space. But with this tool that you have, essentially people are just putting in their own information and this is giving them some guidance as to, as to where they, where they need to go in order to be able to reach that that end goal. So it sort of takes that um, that risk away from away from us, but it gives the client what they what they need and what they're looking for and some clarity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that's the whole piece of it is it's it's all user input. We'll give some guidance around you know some economic indicators like inflation and yeah. you know what they should be and all those sorts of things. But you know it's all in the user's hands. They can go in and ramp up interest rates by two, three, four percent. You know, for me, I mean, the next purchase is going to be pretty significant. Buying a $2.2 million property, I want to know, like I'm I'm setting my assumption of the interest rate at 5%, but what happens if it gets to six or seven? I don't think it personally is, but what if it does? And am I still going to be able to make those repayments with that money coming through? So there's no one else advising me. We're just literally putting numbers and letting the system do the calculations in the back end. And then you can make your own informed decisions based on those numbers and calculations. Yeah, nice, mate. I think it's uh, I think it's something super valuable that um that you, that you have built. We are we are really excited to implement that over the next sort of six six or so months at the investors agency. For those people listening, if they want to find you, follow you, learn more about game plans, where can they do that? Pretty active on majority of the socials. LinkedIn would be number one. Facebook would be number two. Just Jordan Deong D E J O N G. Or you can click me an email at Jordan at gameplans.com.au. 
Perfect, mate. We'll uh, we'll we'll tag you in 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 the episode when we share it as well. So so any any listeners or followers can find you on there as well. But mate, thanks a lot for uh, thanks a lot for joining the the show today. And I think you've added a ton of value to the listeners. No worries, Bobby. Thanks for having me on, mate. It's always good to have a bit of a yarn. Pleasure, mate. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only, and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook.